This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And on this episode of SVU, Allison and I channel our frustrations into beating up cars as we talk about S. Craig Zoller's Brawl in Cell Block 99, currently streaming on Amazon. And in honor of Brawl in Cell Block 99, we were going to devote the rest of this episode to other 99 movies. Uh, you know, but once you get past 99 homes, there really aren't a ton of options, and neither of us really wanted to commit to the horrors of the Woodstock 99 TV special. They charged so much for water, Matt. So much. Uh, so instead, we're going to recommend some other streaming or rentable movies that fall into the neo-exploitation genre that Brawl in Cell Block 99 does. But before that, let's talk Brawl in Cell Block 99. Every once in a while, I see a man in that chair who could just as easily be on this side of the table. That muscle's just for show. Helps me lift stuff. Man principle. Relinquish it now. You know the difference between right or wrong. And you have a moral compass. I knew before you told me that you got an American flag in your home, you probably got more than one. You're a patriot. So we're recording this episode on Skype. Apologies in advance about the sound. Circumstances prevented us, <laughs> on all sides, prevented us from uh, being able to record this normally. Uh, but anyway, here's how we do things. At Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, at the end of every episode, we give you a choice of three different films, or occasionally TV series, that are available to stream or to rent, and we let you vote on which one we'll review in the next episode. Last time we gave you three Three recent films to choose from, Brawl in Cell Block 99, which is on Amazon, Ingrid Goes West, which is on Hulu, and Wonderstruck, which is on Amazon, and with apologies to Todd Haynes, but not too many apologies, I've made it clear this is not a favorite of mine, Wonderstruck never stood a chance. Ingrid Goes West made a valiant effort, but Brawl in Cell Block 99 took the lead and kept it. Brawl in Cell Block 99 is the second film from novelist and heavy metal band member, turned filmmaker, Stephen Craig Zoller. Um, definitely look up his band. <laughs> uh, we spoke about his first film as a director, which is the horror western Bone Tomahawk, back in SVU number 103, if you want to check out that episode. Brawl in Cell Block 99 is set in the present day and in a prison, but you can kind of see a through line uh, from Bone Tomahawk to Brawl in Cell Block 99. Uh, it's also a kind of self-aware genre exercise marked by this laconic pace, some very memorable turns of phrase, my personal favorite. Uh, I'm neither a metallurgist nor a jeweler. I cannot attest to its value. Relinquish it now. Uh, also, fits of brutal violence. This film stars Vince Vaughn as Bradley, not Brad, Thomas, a Southern gentleman who's not doing so great with the straight life when the film starts. He gets fired from his job as a mechanic. He comes home to find his wife, played by Jennifer Carpenter, has been seeing someone else. And in a fit of anger, and what I'm just going to go ahead and say right now is the best scene in the movie for me, he beats up her car. And then... In a nice subversion of expectations, he goes in to talk things out with her and decides to go back to a life of crime in order to make things work. Uh, it does work for a while, and then it doesn't, setting him on a journey to the cell block of the title. Uh, Matt, I, of course, did not go back and listen to our Bone Tomahawk episode, so I'm just going to rely on my increasingly shoddy memory um, that but what we both say, saw promise in it uh, without being entirely won over. So my question for you is, is Brawl in Cell Block 99 a step forward for Zoller, or is it more of a step to the side? Uh, 
Um, I would say it's a, maybe a small step forward. Um, I probably liked it a little bit more than Bone Tomahawk. I, your shoddy memory, my, mine possibly is even more shoddy than yours is. I, I would, especially with two small children and no sleep. I, if you told me we never reviewed it, I'd be like, I think we might have, but I don't know, maybe, I can't remember. But, uh, yeah, I think you're correct. I think that that was our assessment. And I think this one, um, it shows, I, I don't know, I feel like it's, it, it is in some ways more of the same, in some ways maybe a little bit more refined touch. I think the things that were very good about Bone Tomahawk are very good here. Um, the, the, sc- the screenplay in particular, I think S. Craig Zoller, I mean, it's not surprising when you say that he is a, a novelist by trade because I think he's a good writer. He's a good writer of dialogue. I think the movie, uh, the dialogue in this movie is better than you expect to see in a, in a sort of grubby uh, prison crime thriller uh, normally. Um, the dialogue in this movie kind of reminds me of, I don't know, maybe a little bit like a, like Elmore Leonard, I would say, or uh, maybe even mm. a, a little, maybe even a little David Mamet, although not quite that verbose. It just has, it just has, especially the Vince Vaughn character has this kind of poetic uh, way of sort of like, of talking, you know, that he speaks in these sort of lovely flourishes, lovely turns of phrase, not quite realistic, but sort of enjoyable. You appreciate listening to these people um, speak, even when what they're saying is kind of horrible. They have a sort of eloquent or almost poetic way of of, of saying it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's some things about it that I didn't particularly care for. We can talk about that. But, um, you know, I've seen this movie twice now. I had already seen it. I, re- I rewatched it again um, this week and liked some of the things more about it, like certain things a little bit less. Um, it is very long. I don't think it should be as long as it is. It's about two hours and ten minutes, and he really crams. He really figures out a way to cram about. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's way too long. It's it's <laughs> like an it's like a seventy five minute movie. I think that's for some reason is two hours and ten minutes, by my estimation. Um, <laughs> I think I read. I'm I'm, I'm I uh, I forget who I read. Someone said something like that. And I wish I could give them credit, but I, uh, they're correct. It's it's way too long in my estimation, but. Uh, I, I like this movie, uh, and I probably did like it more than Bone Tomahawk, at least a little bit. What about yourself? Well, I kind of like the length. <laughs> I feel like if it were packed into 75 minutes, it would be just a a kind of like tight, trashy movie. But the length feels like the point to me, almost. Like, it's it's got this kind of shaggy dog quality to it, in which it wanders from place to place. I hadn't expected it to feel so almost episodic, you know, this character kind of makes his way from situation to situation. And especially once he gets to prison, he kind of trudges his way in this downward spiral towards the worst possible place he could end up. Uh, And I feel like in some ways the breathing room that gets put there is the point. Um, He keeps kind of like taking looks at different places where he can just bide his time and then choosing not to go with that. Uh, you know, choosing to pursue what he thinks has to, has to be done. Uh, and I, I just feel like, I don't know. I, it's been a long time since I've seen Bone Tomahawk as well. But what I remember from it is that I liked in some ways the bits of like the parts where people are just hanging around talking almost more than I did when there was any forward momentum in the story. Uh, I agree with you. Zoller is a great writer of dialogue and just some of those exchanges, yeah, really have like such a voice to them, such a such a kind of like uh, gritty poetry to them. They're funny. Uh, I really enjoy these exchanges of dialogue, and um, and I felt uh, while I would also say I think that Brawl is a little more coherent a movie than Bone Tomahawk. In some ways, I feel like the story continues to be the least interesting part of his movies for me. I almost want to just see his characters you know, kill time in a room together uh, or in Bone Tomahawk, the the way they were kind of killing time riding together. Uh, those are the parts I end up liking the most. Yeah. You're not uh, wrong. But now that you, yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. I mean, the, my, my, I think my favorite scene in the movie is the one that's when um, we follow uh, Bradley Vince Vaughn into the, the prison for the first time and, and to get inside, he has this, 
you ha- he has to um, get past Fred Melamed as the I don't know the intake guy, mm-hmm. and it's and it's like every per- if anyone if you do the littlest thing wrong, he sends you to the back of the line, and just mm-hmm. the sort of bleak dark humor of that scene and the way each of the actors there, Vince Vaughn and Fred Melamed, really seem to be relishing the the, the quality of the dialogue there and. Uh, it, it's a it's a great little scene. It has very little to do with the sort of momentum, the narrative drive. At that point in the movie, there is really no narrative drive. You have kind of no idea where the movie is going at that point. And I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you were saying you enjoy. I guess you have a point. I mean, I, I'm I'm here saying that it's too long, but I, I also seem to agree that uh, a tighter movie. You know, if it was just the plot, I probably wouldn't be happy with that uh, because the, the best stuff is the kind of, you know, the the moments, the little scenes. You mentioned already the scene um, that surprises you the first time you see it when, you know, this this Palooka uh, Bradley destroys the car, which is, I agree, a terrific scene. He's like Frankenstein's monster or something. He's just destroying <laughs> this thing. And then he goes inside and he very calmly has this rational conversation um, with his wife. And, you know, she's been unfaithful, but he loves her and they agree to work it out. And uh, it's kind of this amazing little scene. And then it picks up, I guess, 18 months later. Um so yeah, I guess I guess I, I find myself sort of at odds. It's like I, the movie is maybe I need a I need the seventy five minute cut that's just people sitting around and talking. I don't know. I, I guess that wouldn't be a very good movie, <laughs> but I, I seem to I, I do agree that the 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 plot is is one of the weaker uh, parts of the movie. Maybe though that has something to do with the sort of fatalistic kind of approach that Zoller has to this story. And he kind of had to bone Tomahawk as well. It's like he sends these very, these characters that he, we kind of grow to like on these very tragic, almost suicide missions. And so Mm -hmm. it's sort of, in some ways it's kind of deliberately painful and brutal to watch them. You know, they're almost like martyrs. And uh, in this movie, there's a gigantic cross on the back of Vince Vaughn's head. So uh, (laughs) uh, the symbolism is, is I would say it's, it's, not entirely subtle, and uh, so so <laughs> so maybe that's part of the issue is that uh, you know like he creates these characters we kind of like or that we're interested in following, spending time with, and then kind of forces us to watch them like sort of sink into oblivion, which can be kind of painful. Yeah, I, it's funny because he has such an appreciation for these eccentric characters. Uh, Fred Malamed certainly. Don Johnson as Warden Tugs, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Udo Kier, the Placid Man. Yep. Even I didn't even look at who the actor was, but there's an actor towards the last scene who's just like a fellow cellmate who's just poking his head out of like a tiny hole in the door. And the fact that the movie makes room for that to happen in like what is effectively the climax of the movie <laughs> for for Vince Vaughn's character to have a few exchanges with his cellmate who he never sees more than his face uh i you know i like that a lot it it does feel in this movie maybe even more than bone tomahawk that the genre is almost just this thing on which you know the actual stuff of the movie hangs Mm -hmm. like he doesn't he doesn't have a lot of interest in forward momentum here it really like like even when you describe the actual plot of the movie and the way it's like paced over paced over these like two plus hours you know there's like it's it's it takes a long time to get to the brawl let's just say that (laughs) yes Um, like i like i had expected i had really expected something kind of like i don't know in my head like not the raid but like something longer you know in which the brawl was consumed much more of the movie it really doesn't uh as much of the movie is Vince Vaughn dealing with the increasingly bad uh, uh, kind of like situation in prison and the toilets. <laughs> yeah, uh, he is this really this movie is a is a movie about worse and worse toilets. That, <laughs> that is what this movie is about. Yeah, and like worse and worse, like <laughs> a, a nuisances. It's like every little thing, like the shoes that don't fit, or you know, it's like every little. <laughs> every little thing that kind of drives him crazy and you have I actually that's what I kind of uh I wanted to ask you about was like Vince Vaughn's performance cuz this is so uh, you know unlike the kind of stuff we've seen him do 
um, I guess he's in recent years he seems to be kind of segueing into darker, uh, more serious roles. He did that season of True Detective, which I'm not even going to pretend I got through. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I watched an episode and a half, maybe max. Um, well, I, I watched guess, the whole thing, but I am a masochist. <laughs> you, I was just about to say, well, you ha- clearly hate yourself and have a lot of time on your hands. Yeah, that's but, not news. That's yes. not news. So I guess in, in a sense he has been sort of – in the last couple of years he's been um, sort of segueing into this sort of material. But it's still certainly against the type that he became famous and became a huge star on. What do you, what do you think of his performance here? Well, it's funny that he has always been I, there's this part in the in the movie in which there's this recurring bit in which two of the guards who are responsible for intake keep kind of assessing almost like rating the prisoners, you know? They mm-hmm. give him they look at him nude and give him an A minus. Right. And then they're trying to guess how tall he is. And I feel like it is something about Vince Vaughn that has never really played a uh, or at least not in my memory, played a significant part of his performances, which is that he is this really kind of physically imposing guy. You know, mm-hmm. he is not as gangly as he used to be back in the, the swingers days, but he's always been tall. He's always been like six, five. And to see him play a role in which it's just about being big in that way, I thought was really, uh, it was kind of an interesting thing to see him use his physicality, uh, that's always been there and like lean into it in this way where to, where it's just, it's not even that he is necessarily <clears throat> a great fighter, though he certainly fights people and is not incompetent at it. But in this movie, so much of it is just on his ability to get hit a lot and not be bothered by it. And then to just brutalize other people with his strength. Right. He's, um, I mean, he's Frankenstein. Right. There's something about like seeing him, seeing this person who often plays this like fast talking, comedic character transform into like this brute brute basically that uh, I don't know it surprised me like he uh the you know the whole his whole look the skull tattoo the um I just I, I feel like there was something about it that uh it showed me a new side of him really that I hadn't expected I don't know that I think he kind of like set the screen on fire in this movie though I mean that would kind of be beside the point his character is so kind of uh, sardonic and not a big talker or emoter. Uh, but I enjoyed him in this kind of role. I wouldn't mind seeing more of that. You know, I, I kind of like the idea of like uh, Vince Vaughn swapping over to making a kind of uh, semi-action movie career. That appeals to me. Yeah. But well, what about you, Matt? What do you think of this? Well, you mentioned, you mentioned that his physicality and that's a big part of it. But I was also impressed with... Um, the way he speaks and you know like there is the, to me there is a very uh, clear Vince Vaughn type of character and no matter who he's played he very often just you know every character is exactly the same it's that guy from Swingers uh, he always has that sort of same cadence that same way of talking and acting and I think you know it's often very charming and very funny and he's he's worked it to great effect and you know he has a way of making all the the dialogue seem kind of improvised, like he's riffing on every line. And here, because, uh, as we've discussed, the dialogue is so good, S. Craig Zoller's dialogue is so good, you don't get that sense at all. It's a totally different sort of verbal performance that he gives. It's very crisp and very to the point and very direct. And he's good at it, too. He really sells that side of the character as well. I think the physical part of it is very interesting and it's like i agree it's something that's always been there that people haven't really taken advantage of and is taken advantage of very well here but i also thought that like you know just emotionally and verbally to see this other side was really really interesting as well yeah i think that uh you know it's 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 true like i think that you know vaughn has made such a such a career out of playing like the the nice guy's bad friend. <laughs> right. Like, uh, you know, I mean, that's who he plays in Swingers. It's who he plays in Wedding Crashers. It's who he plays in so many movies. He's like uh, the guy who, like... The troublemaker. He's the guy you wish... Right. The guy you wish your boyfriend would stop hanging out with. <laughs> right. Um, and, I, and I feel like... Uh, I don't know. To see him play this, this type of character, but also to see him play someone who's, like, like sincerely devoted to his marriage... And to the family he's going to have is kind of uh, was surprising and sweet to me. Like, uh, it's not like these characters spend 
a bulk of their time together in this movie. But I think that scene, like the that early scene in which they talk things out, and it is so weirdly grown up for a movie that is about punching cars, punching people in prison. Uh, right. Uh, that that there is, you know, that that there is something about that that feels much like it's almost making a point when Vaughn has played so many overgrown man children uh, that like one of the first things he does in this movie besides commit this act of violence is then be like, can we talk about our relationship and how I can save it right. by returning to my life of drug, de- drug carrying? <laughs> yeah. You know, right. it's a mature choice, Matt. <laughs> it is a very mature choice. I will say though, and this is one of the things that really struck me more the second time. I don't know why it didn't, the first time but you know that he uh, he uh he's presented as this guy with this moral code he has to do what's right and you know and so that's sort of what gets him into trouble over and over again including you know at this heist that goes bad and um he wants he, he correctly assesses the situation he wants to walk away the guys he's working with who he didn't want to work with in the first place they get into the shootout with the cops and then he ultimately gets captured because instead of running away he like basically helps the cops and all this stuff and you know it's supposed to be this upstanding moral choice but uh i gotta say the second time i watched it i was like as a father myself it's like he should he should get out of there. He should take care of his children. What is he doing? Like I'm sorry. I'm sorry cops. But uh this guy this man is a, is a, is about to be a father and apparently really excited to be a father. Like and uh, not to spoil too much about it, but this sort of puts his life on a very different path that's going to take him away from this this uh unborn child. For some reason the first time I saw it I was totally on board with it and the second time I had a really hard time with that decision and was like uh, it was like Vince Vaughn, Bradley. You are you are making the wrong decision here. I don't know if this really is the the moral choice, the upstanding choice to make in this moment. I uh, see. I when that scene happened, I don't know if I necessarily associated it with a moral choice so much as that it almost seemed like a protest on his part for the fact that they those two were so incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I don't like I, I think that that's just entirely my projection on it, because it's not something that I thought made a ton of sense at the time. Um, but and I agree, I think, especially given how important this family is supposed to be to him, that I don't know that I buy. Uh, I don't know that I buy that he has a strict moral code. Uh, I, I It seemed more to me, certainly, at least in the way he gets into things and the ways in which he protests who he's getting paired up with he seemed to be just more a guy who set a lot of rules because he thought things worked best that way Mm. um but i don't know either way you don't really get to see a lot of him as a professional criminal you know Mm. he does his thing like twice and and then the end um before before we move on i did want to ask like how do you how do you see this working as a neo-exploitation film do you see would that be a fair label to you to call this a neo-exploitation film? I, I think 100%. I mean, it is very clearly to me a uh, an exploitation film. It's rooted in that uh, tradition. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know. Our, I, I haven't really, you know, you suggested this as a topic this week, and I haven't really heard people describe uh, kind of uh, neo-exploitation films as a sort of budding uh, subgenre or whatever you want to call it. But if it is a thing, I mean, this is a, to me, this would be a perfect example because... Um, when I think about sort of modern exploitation films, whatever you want to call them, I think there are, and this is something we can talk about in uh, Q Shots, I think there's really two different kinds, and there's two different directions you can kind of go, and one of them is to go kind of high and to take sort of really gritty, dark material and to try to like, I don't know, adult it up, uh, make the violence even more violent and grotesque and horrifying, but also sort of try to deal with more mature themes. And in this movie, you have the you know the the stuff about the the family, and you have uh, you know you have an extremely well written movie. You have great uh, smart dialogue, um, and so you're sort of taking this grubby um, uh, uh, genre film, and you're sort of treating it a little more seriously. And to me, that's one of the hallmarks of of one strain of modern exploitation films. What about you? Yeah, I think so. I think that it also, and again, we can talk about this in the next segment, but I think that it does something that 
it, it actually manages in some ways to resolve the tension that I feel sometimes in in movies that I would call neo-exploitation films, which is that like sometimes you, there's a self-awareness there about your genre and what you're doing mm. uh, that I think sometimes gets in the way of the film. But I think in this case, because in some ways the genre is so background to these little bits of business, like the dialogue, like those exchanges that are brought to the forefront <clears throat> that I think that I don't really feel, I don't feel any air quotes on it. You know, it's not, I think a traditional prison movie in any sense, <laughs> but I think that it doesn't feel like it gets caught up uh, in what it's doing so much. I think that for whatever it's worth, and parts that I, I, you know, and I mostly like this film, uh, the parts that really work for me and the parts that not so much, I think that it, it is its own beast. Uh, it is its own thing. It doesn't feel like it's trying too hard to make a gesture towards, uh, you know, any past genre or, or kind of towards any ironic distance. All right. Well, that is Brawl in Cell Block 99, and it is streaming on Amazon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, so in the last segment I was kind of talking about, well, there's one way to sort of go with these neo-exploitation films, which is to sort of kind of go high and take this sort of uh, disreputable material and kind of adult it up, smarten it up, do something kind of class class it up, maybe. Um, and then there's another <laughs> way to go, which is to kind of go low with it, which is to sort of embrace the tawdriness, the sleaziness, the low-rentness, the... You know, maybe maybe make the effects deliberately bad, maybe make the dialogue deliberately cheesy. I feel like there's a whole school that goes that direction with things, and I I kind of have one of those as my my first pick. Um, I don't know if you have any other general thoughts you want to say, but I can kind of roll right into my pick with that if if you don't. Do it. Roll with it. Okay, roll right so, in. So my first pick, definitely in that low neo exploitation mode. It is knowingly low rent. With uh, goofy, handmade special effects, costumes, and props. And that is definitely a huge part of its charm, at least to me. It is called Manborg, and it was released in 2011 by a group of Canadian filmmakers that I would definitely consider... I mean, if there is such a thing as neo-exploitation, I think these guys are kind of at the forefront of it, at least on this low end of the spectrum. And I don't mean low uh, insultingly. I think that's sort of what they go for. The group is called Astron 6, and Manborg was their first feature. They've also made a slasher comedy called Father's Day. The faux uh, giallo film, The Editor, which I, I also like quite a bit. And they, they, some of the guys in this group also made The Void, which isn't, I don't think is technically an Astron 6 film, but is made by, again, some of the same guys. Uh, Manborg, I first saw at Fantastic Fest, which I think was the perfect place to see it. Um, it's directed by Stephen Katansky. It is streaming on Amazon Prime and also on Shudder right now. And the best way I could think to describe the look of this movie is it's like the feature-length version of the cutscenes from an extremely ambitious Sega CD game. It is about <laughs> a, a war between mankind and the armies of hell. Uh, it's basically about this soldier who's killed and then kind of robocopped back into life. And he's fighting back against these demon soldier guys. It's basically the biggest supernatural war epic you could imagine, except the whole thing looks like it was shot in a green screen, uh, in front of a green screen, in a garage, and the effects are incredibly and overtly crude. Uh, the bad guys are often herky-jerky. The animation is, like, very obviously stop-motion with these kind of... Uh, lasers that are clearly kind of animated on top of the frame and 
um, characters, some of the characters, their lines are very obviously dubbed as if, you know, as if this movie had been made in the 1980s um, by people who had no money and hired an actor who didn't speak English and then replaced every line of dialogue that they said because what they had recorded on set was garbled and unintelligible. And I, I recognize that this sort of thing is it can be an acquired taste, but if you have a soft spot in your heart for really schlocky schlock, I think you could get a big <laughs> kick out of this. You know, if if you used to pr- prowl your local video store looking for the craziest box art you could find, the craziest sounding movie, you know, just and just renting something based on that, you probably will like this. And in a way, my recommendation almost diminishes it because I feel like that or something approximating that in 2018 is the best way to enjoy it. If you randomly stumbled on this movie, knew nothing about it, saw the cover art, saw the name Manborg, and were like, what the hell is this? And then watched it and, and then was kind of blown away by the super deranged vision of it all. Um, but that's not really how this podcast works, so I, I'm recommending it anyway. Oh, well. <laughs> Recommended for men and Borgs alike. It is Manborg. It is very, uh, very trashy and and very charming and very, uh, very fun. It is streaming on Amazon Prime and Shudder. So I don't always have a great time with movies that like really painstakingly recreate like um, low budget filmmaking. You know, uh, it's, I, it's, I know it's something that you have always been really fond of and it's not something I always click with, mm. but I will say that I, I feel like my first pick, it, it feels a bit like a relative of that though. It's like really a painstaking recreation of, uh, of a style, I would say, and a sensibility more than it is like low budget, uh, effects or things like that. It is Viva, and it is available for rent. Uh, This is a 2007 film. There are a few Vivas out there. This one's a 2007 one. That happens to be the first film from Anna Biller, who did The Love Witch more recently. And like that film, Viva takes this really heightened approach uh, to recreating this kind of past genre that never really existed. It's got this deliberately artificial style of performance and lighting really bright vintage costuming and set design that Biller does herself. Uh, And she even stars in this one as Barbie, a bored suburban housewife in the seventies at the time of the sexual revolution, who often seems to be kind of sex adjacent without, or, or being subjected to sex without ever seeming to find fulfillment herself. Uh, So I include this as an exploitation film kind of cautiously. Biller has in interviews pushed back a lot against comparison of her films to exploitation films uh though i i think that she has more negative connotations uh to the term than i do uh i think for her it seems to be that exploitation films connote sloppiness and haphazardous and her films are really really painstaking Um, but i do think it's fair to say that viva owes some touches to sexploitation films, um, especially in its heavy use of non-sexual nudity. It really, there's whole sequences that really, really seem like a callback to those documentaries that, uh, you know, they would pass off as educational films. Like, oh, this is a documentary about a nudist camp. And no one was seeing that documentary because they wanted to learn <laughs> lessons about <laughs> nudist camp. <laughs> like Speak for yourself, ways, Allison. Kind of they, <laughs> they would like sneak around you know the uh the kind of laws uh by by saying well you can learn something from this um and so certainly like when when the film pays a visit to a nudist camp and everyone stops to sing a song that feels very much (laughs) like a a kind of uh gesture towards that particular type of sexploitation film um But, you know, uh, Biller describes this film more as that she is recreating this idea of the image of swingers in the swinging 70s that was kind of sold to people via Playboy. Uh, I really like this film. I think it actually works for me a little more than The Love Witch, uh, in particular, because it is about this character who is this kind of innocent, uh, who has been living this life of involuntary solitude as a housewife because her husband is always away and after something bad happens between them she attempts to reinvent herself by diving headfirst into the sexual liber- like the sexual liberation movement 
Uh, and instead, only terrible things <laughs> seem to happen to her. Um, she goes off to try, be, try to become a model uh, and gets drugged by two men who end up having sex with each other because she's no fun when she's unconscious. Uh, she becomes this kind of accidental call girl. Uh, she wakes up after her first night with a man saying, I thought I was going to hate myself this morning, but I don't. I hate you. <laughs> um, wherever she goes, she's kind of like told that she's being so uptight by not just having sex with someone shortly after meeting them. She's told she's burning up with lust. Uh, all of these men make abrupt and sometimes violent passes at her. Um, uh, and towards the end, it, it crosses over into assault. Uh, but it's always just technicolor bright. Like it's all, and it's got this really chipper uh, tone to it that makes what happens increasingly disturbing. And I think that it manages to play off of this idea of this like uh, fun, naughty exploitation film this really bleak undercurrent underneath that its main character doesn't seem to fully acknowledge herself. Uh, she doesn't really seem to uh, want to say out loud that she's not really having any fun at all. Um, and that maybe a lot of this kind of like sexual revolution uh, stuff that she's buying into doesn't really seem to work out all of that well for women or certainly not as well as it does seems to to all of the men she keeps meeting at these parties um so that is viva which i liked a lot um it is definitely worth checking out especially if you liked the love witch uh i would say it kind of it's it's very much in that mode uh, and it is available for rent all right for my second pick i'm going with a brand new movie which is, a, uh, I think, a very good representation of another form of these kind of modern or neo-exploitation films, the direct-to-video martial arts movie. And 20 years ago, these kind of films, they actually got theatrical releases with stars like Steven Seagal, JCVD, Jackie Chan, Jet Li. These days, they almost all go direct-to-video or now direct-to-streaming, and there's this new generation of stars alongside pretty much all those same old dudes who are still at it. They're a little slower, perhaps a little wider, perhaps a little more wigged, but they are still around. But anyway, my new favorite of the new guys is Scott Adkins. We have talked about him on the show before. He pretty much looks like Ben Affleck's stunt double, but in addition to being a very good, very talented, very skilled martial artist, he's actually a pretty good actor, um, even though most of his movies do not take advantage of that. Um, but this movie, his new movie, it comes out on February 6th on DVD, on Blu-ray, and also on Digital HD. It's called Accident Man, and it, it actually does have a, uh, a room for some nice acting uh, alongside the, the action. It's a very sturdy revenge movie. It's based on a British comic book, which I have never read about a hitman who specializes in making his kills look like accidents, hence the title. He is still hung up on an ex-girlfriend who had recently died, whom he discovers was actually murdered by one of his fellow assassin buddies, because all of the assassins are all friends, of course. They all hang out together. Um, so you have part mystery as he's trying to track down his ex girlfriend's killer, and you have part kung fu movie, since in addition to being very good at murdering people in ways that look like accidents, he's also very good at spinning roundhouse kicks. He's got a wide variety of skills. Uh, not a very particular <laughs> set of skills. He's got a very broad set of skills in this movie. Um, another thing that I think distinguishes most uh, exploitation films then, now, and forever is you are often allowed to have good guys who are not entirely good. Uh, they can operate uh, by a moral code that we can respect, but they usually are operating on the wrong side of the law or outside of the law. They're probably not too interested in justice or following the rules. And in an exploitation film, that's okay. These movies are supposed to be nasty. They're exploitation. They're, these are, these are, you know, they, these are movies are supposed to appeal to the darker side of things. And I think that was true of Brawl and Cell Block 99. It's very true of Accident Man. Um, this character that Scott Adkins is playing in this film, he's kind of a nasty guy. He kills people for money. He's not only good at it, he kind of enjoys it. And um, I thought this movie is not quite as well written as Brawl and Cell Block 99, but it's, it's pretty well written for this kind of thriller, and it's dominated by this very witty, sardonic voiceover by Scott Adkins describing what he does, giving the viewers tips on how to murder people. 
and he's ostensibly the good guy in the film. And the cast also includes Ray Stevens, uh, another great mean guy. He plays Scott Adkins' mentor, David Paymer, a wonderful that guy uh, character actor who plays the guy who gives the assassins their assignments. And you also have Michael Jai White in the film as well. He plays uh, one of the other assassins. He has several excellent fights with Scott Adkins. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really solid version of this kind of movie. Scott Adkins makes a lot of movies. It's the only way to make a living doing these direct-to-video films. You've got to crank them out. And I would estimate, I haven't seen all of his films because he makes so many, but I'd estimate at least half of them aren't very good. But the other half are, are pretty good. And every couple of years he has like a gem. And Accident Man is one of those gems. It's, uh, it's definitely in the upper, upper uh, class of this kind of thing. And again, it's a brand new movie. It is just coming out. I just got to see it on a screener and thoroughly enjoyed it. Good action scenes. Uh, I didn't talk about those too much. But the, um, the director, Jesse V. Johnson, I believe he is a former stuntman himself. He knows what he's doing in that regard. Very slick action, well choreographed, well shot, and uh, and I, I I like this one. I recommend it. It is going to be available on uh, DVD, Blu-ray, and digital HD on February 6th. And the way these movies work is within a couple of months or less, you're going to find it on streaming somewhere as well. All right. Well, uh, you know, I something that I don't always love with the kind of neo-exploitation genre, is when someone kind of goes out of their way to try and make, like a machete, you know, or that kind of movie where there's a little too much self-awareness for me. Right. I need a little pure of heart to it, you know? <laughs> Something that, like, kind of is um, overly winking trash is just not, not nearly as fun as something that is pure of heart trash. Um, that said, I will say I took a chance on this next one, which looks very much like it would be overly winky trash. Uh, and I hadn't seen it, and it was streaming on Shutter, and so I watched Nurse 3D. Oh boy. Uh, You know, Matt, I had not, I had never seen this 2013 film uh, directed by Doug uh, Araniakowski. I hope I got that right. Uh, you know, mostly what I knew about it was that it had somehow managed to get slightly more positive reviews than negative reviews, and also that La Huerta ended up unsuccessfully suing Lionsgate over the film, which she claimed had ruined her life, both because she was hit by a moving ambulance while making the movie, and while she was in recovery, recorded a voiceover that the filmmakers didn't like. They had re-recorded by another actress of results that she claimed were subpar and were attributed to her and hurt her career, if you followed that. Got it. Uh, but... <laughs> But she is indeed the titular nurse in Nurse 3D, uh, which if you watch it on Shudder, as I did, uh, you're not watching in 3D. And so instead you're watching a movie that is shot like a kind of uh, B-movie in 3D, you know, with things poking at the camera. And like, uh, and actually, in a weird way, it becomes a kind of distinctive stylistic choice, even though you're getting none of the 3D effects in it. Um I will say that this movie is kind of half fun trash uh, in, in, in which De La Huerta plays Abby, a, uh, a nurse by trade, but serial killer by calling who, you know, as you said, Matt, uh, good guys are not always entirely good uh, in these movies. And yeah. Abby is definitely not. Mm -hmm. uh, she likes to lure in and then murder cheating men. Mm. Uh, and then she tells them as they're dying about how their families will be better off now that they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and then there, uh, she happens to work at a hospital with a serious sexual harassment problem, uh, given the way the doctors treat the nurses, which actually makes it pretty funny that there's a whole thread involving the new ill-fated head of a in the movie. But that's kind of as much of a uh, actual sense of humor that the movie pulls off. There's also this kind of tedious single white female-esque string of events in which Abby becomes obsessed with this new nurse she's supposed to mentor, played by Katrina Bowden. Um, there's uh, a lot of kind of like self-aware, sexualized leering, uh, which doesn't really feel like a subversion uh, of this kind of like hyper male gaze so much as it feels just like a let you know nudge in the nudge in the ribs about it. Um, but I will say that what half redeems this film uh, is De La Huerta. Uh, who is really playing in her kind of strong suit here, which is to be hypersexual, but also scary. 
uh, the best type of role that she can play. Uh, and I think that, you know, she is not capable of doing a winky performance. Uh, she can only do a fully committed, if not always great performance. And I will say here, she just fits perfectly, or rather the movie kind of fits perfectly around her as this, uh, you know, kind of disaster of a person who is also really convincingly good at what she does, even though what she does is murdering people. Um, I think that there is, uh, I, you know, always am kind of rooting for De La Huerta, uh, but uh, who's, who's not always had a great time, certainly. Uh, certainly not, but uh, especially if you read any of the Harvey Weinstein stories uh, that she kind of told. But I will say that uh, uh, this movie showcases some of what she has done best on screen, which is to be this kind of hypnotically woozy performance in which you're never quite sure if she's going to be able to hold it together. And then maybe she does and she pulls it off. Uh, she is kind of really suited to neo-exploitation, I think. It's really the genre for her. And uh, I hope that this is not ruining her career per her lawsuit, because I feel like, actually, I'd like to see her make another movie like this. I am rooting for you, Paz Lilo Huerta. That is Nurse 3D, and it's on Shutter. Uh, Allison, I want to tell you something. Tell me something. I also like Nurse 3D. <laughs> I, I'm, can I can I can I read you uh, can I read you my entire letterboxed review of Nurse 3D? Please. Okay. Please do. Here it is. This is the entire review. Trash. <laughs> and then it says suggested alternate title Paz de la Huerta prefers not to wear underpants. And then I wrote the mo- yes. This movie is sleazier and funnier than some actual pornography, which is why I liked it. <laughs> there you go. Yes. So that's, oh, but also, yes. Also, while while researching this, that's a very good review. While Thank researching you. this, by the way, I ended up down this weird Google rabbit hole regarding Pazuelo Huerta's uh, lawsuit, mm-hmm. and I noticed that our New York film critics colleague, New York film critics colleague Ed Gonzalez, had written a one star review of this movie mm-hmm. that actually became a kind of central text in her lawsuit. Really. <laughs> Yes. Wow. Uh, she quotes a line from it. Yes, in which he did, he talks about her somnambulistic somnambulistic <laughs> delivery of beyond purple lines as a reason that this movie hurt her career because she said I didn't deliver those lines. That was the person who was hired to redub me. Mm. So there you go. If anyone ever tells you that a film critic doesn't have power, well, that was a fifty-five million dollar lawsuit that didn't go through. So we don't. <laughs> All righty, let's wrap up the show with Behind the Eight Ball. That's where we run down three new releases on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations that you guys have emailed to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film chosen by my number from our My Lists on Netflix. I think Allison is going first this time. Do I have that right? I'm going to go first. All right, so let's start with three new releases. Okay, first up, new to 2B TV is Canadian Bacon. Yes, this would be the 1995 film, the only scripted film that Michael Moore has yet attempted. And also the final film to be released uh, to star John Candy. It was quite a way to end a career. Uh, but that is on 2B TV, if you've ever been curious about that movie. There it is. New to Amazon is Menasha. Uh, this is this the uh, 2017 film directed by Joshua Z. Weinstein. Uh, it was at Sundance last year, and A24 picked it up. It is shot entirely in Brooklyn, and it, it takes place almost entirely in Yiddish because it is set in the Hasidic community of Borough Park. It's actually a really charming little film, a very low-budget movie, but uh, one of those movies that while being set in a community that for, I think, uh, most of us is like a very kind of uh, new uh, exotic place, uh, it manages to really tell a story and be character focused and not treat that like an act of tourism. Uh, so it's worth a look. Menasha, that is on Amazon. And finally, new to Shudder is Don't Look Up. This is a 1996 horror film from Hideo Nakata, who would go on a few years later to make The Ring. So this is kind of a J-horror wave precursor. 
uh, taking place on a film set, a war film, where uh, the filmmakers find when they look at the dailies that these scenes keep splicing themselves into the footage that they didn't shoot, featuring a woman laughing mysteriously. Uh, it was remade apparently in 2009, and it was horrible. So don't look at that. Look at this 1996 version on Shutter. Don't look up. All right. How about two listener recommendations? First up, I've got one from Scott Gentry in Barkingside in the UK, who writes, "Hope you're both well and enjoying Oscar season. It is now in full sway." Matt, are you enjoying Oscar season? Ugh. <laughs> Same. Um, Scott writes, having listened to the podcast for almost two years now, I decided I should probably stop being a freeloader and contribute. So here's my first and hopefully not last listener recommendation, Inherent Vice, streaming on Netflix in the UK. Uh, It's available for rent here in the US. Paul Thomas Anderson's Divisive, to say the least, seventh feature film is lengthy, perhaps oftentimes blissfully and it wasn't hugely popular with audiences, critics, or the Academy, but I'd like to encourage people to give it another chance, as I think it is a criminally underrated neo-noir, which is ambitious and may provide rewarding experiences upon rewatch. Similar to Boogie Nights, Inherent Vice places you in 1970, but it holds you there with an endless slew of colorful characters and period detail, which makes you never want to leave. It is frequently hilarious, sad, and a joy to experience the nods to classic film noir. It may be a slow burn, but once I decided not to follow the movie's plot and embrace the psychedelic genius of its script, adapted from Thomas Pynchon's source novel, I picked up political context, some crisp dialogue, and so much more. What a groovy trip. Um, Yeah, I'm a big fan of Inherent Vice, too. I always felt like it was kind of uh, underrated. Uh, So thank you for that, Scott. And then I've got one from Andre in Charlottesville, Virginia, who writes, I don't usually watch Netflix movies or series without getting a thumbs up from you two. However, I decided to be daring and watch the German series Dark on Netflix. True to its title, it's an eerie, mysterious, time-traveling drama that will turn your mind into a pretzel or maybe a trinity knot. In the words of Stefan from SNL, it has everything unsupervised teens, illicit affairs, a mysterious hooded wanderer, 80s music, German accents, a nuclear power plant, and wormholes. So that is Dark on Netflix. Thank you, Andre. All right. One film chosen by the by number from your My List. You gave me number nine. Number nine on my My List is Before I Wake. Do you know what this is, Matt? Um, I think I do, but you tell me and I'll tell you if I'm thinking of the right movie. <laughs> Okay, this is like uh, the movie that Mike Flanagan, the kind of new horror darling Mike Flanagan made uh, a few films ago, finally just came out. Uh, I think he shot it in two, uh, 2013. It was picked up by Relativity Media. They kept rescheduling it. Then they went bankrupt. And then it was kind of stuck in limbo for a while. And then Netflix picked it up. Uh, you know, Mike Flanagan made Hush and Gerald's Game for Netflix and is doing the Haunting of Hill House series uh, for Netflix as well. So I'm assuming they're just kind of like, we'll go in on that. It's gotten very medium reviews, but uh, Kate Bosworth, Thomas Jane, Jacob Tremblay, who's uh, probably now looks like a, like way older. <laughs> but it, it's, it's a, a kind of dark fantasy horror film, apparently. Uh, I like Flanagan. I think he's talented. So I was uh, a little curious about this, but obviously not so curious that I've rushed to it. It is number nine on my my list. Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay, give me three new releases. Well, first up, it didn't win our listeners' choice poll, but this is a reminder that Ingrid Goes West is now streaming on Hulu. This dark comedy is sort of a single white female for the Instagram age. Aubrey Praza stars as the title character, a mentally unwell young woman who becomes obsessed with a Instagram celebrity played by Elizabeth Olsen. Plaza's Ingrid moves to Los Angeles and begins stalking Olsen's character, which is very easy to do when you document your every waking moment on social media. Don't do that. Um, I thought this was a very perceptive film, a very well-acted film, including by Aubrey Plaza and Elizabeth Olsen, and also by O'Shea Jackson Jr., a.k.a. Ice Cube's son, who played Ice Cube in Straight Outta Compton. And here he shows, I thought, he's capable of a lot more than just imitating his dad. He's terrific and really funny in this movie. Um, So that's, even though we didn't discuss it as our main review, it's worth checking out. Ingrid Goes West on Hulu. 
Next up, I have the Walter Hill classic, The Warriors, which is coming out to play on Amazon Prime. It is set in a, uh, I guess, an alternate universe New York City from the late 1970s or early 1980s, totally overrun with gangs. It follows the member of one particular Coney Island gang known as the Warriors as they try to return home after they're framed for murder. Uh, It's a tough, gritty, goofy... I guess it is kind of an old-school exploitation film, now that I think about it. And it also has a gang of dudes who dress up like baseball players with face paint. So, rightfully considered one of the great New York movies of all time, it is The Warriors on Amazon Prime. Finally, uh, coming to Netflix on February 1st, just in time to celebrate the film's 10th anniversary, is Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, the terrific spoof of musical biopics, starring John C. Riley as a great country star who could never please his father after he accidentally murdered his brother with a machete, as one does, uh, as he recalls his entire life before he goes on stage to collect a Lifetime Achievement Award. Dewey reflects on drug abuse, polygamy, stardom, meeting the Beatles, more drug abuse, somehow succeeding in the music business despite not having a sense of smell, and even more drug abuse. I recently rewatched uh, and wrote a tribute to this film uh, at ScreenCrush.com for that 10th anniversary, and I can say with absolute certainty, this is one of the best comedies of the 21st century. I love it. If you've never seen it, it will be streaming on Netflix on February 1st. Walk hard. All right. Give me two listener recommendations. All right. Our first is from Andrew in Fort Branch, Indiana. Andrew writes, I have a quick recommendation. Streaming now for free on Amazon Prime is Robert Altman's 1972 psychological horror film Images. The movie stars Susanna York as a housewife with a complicated past. She and her lover, played by Rene Aboujonois, spend the weekend together in a quaint country home. And during the holiday, York is tormented by memories of decisions she may regret now. She struggles to decipher reality from her overactive imagination. Composed in a very Altman-like style, the film feels like a nightmare. I think the film would make a great double feature with Darren Aronofsky's mother. Images isn't as direct in its religious allegory, but the two films seem to be almost in conversation with one another. I would be very surprised if Aronofsky wasn't inspired by this film. So that is Images, streaming on Amazon Prime. That's a recommendation from Andrew in Fort Branch, Indiana. Thank you, Andrew. I've never seen Images. That's one of the Robert Altman films I've never seen, so I'm... I'm going to be watching that one in the very near future. I was going to say I was going to add it to my my list, but I don't think such a thing exists on Amazon. But I'm just going to have to remember <laughs> and watch it. Our next recommendation comes from Patrick in Durham, North Carolina. Patrick writes, I want to recommend a podcast to you and your listeners. Episode 49 and episode 62 of 99% Invisible from way back in 2012. Besides including an interview with the person responsible for Netflix using the word Q, and possibly for their getting rid of it, the episodes look at the ways that waiting in line has reflected changes in our society, up to and including the ways that paying to skip the line is eroding the broadly democratic nature of internet-based media consumption. With net neutrality dying or maybe dead by the time you read this, streaming video outlets and viewers may soon find themselves dealing with a very different economic model for their preferred format of movie and television, and these podcast episodes shed some fascinating light on that change. Thank you for your wonderful podcast as well. That's Uh, episodes 49 and 62 of the 99% Invisible podcast, and that was a recommendation from Patrick in Durham, North Carolina. Thank you, Patrick. We love uh, alternate podcast recommendations as well. Mm -hmm. All right, give me one from your My List. You also gave me number nine, and number nine on my My List right now is Berlin Syndrome. Plot description reads, what starts as a passionate one-night stand quickly turns sinister when Claire learns she's locked inside Andy's apartment with No Way Out. Uh, Film stars Teresa Palmer. I think this premiered maybe last year at the Toronto Film Festival. I guess I heard some good things about it. I guess I saw that it was added to Netflix and I added it to my, my list. Have not gotten around to watching it. Have you seen this film, Allison? I have. I think I might have even mentioned it briefly on the podcast. 
It, should long, I keep, long ago. Should I keep it on here or should I mix it's it? It's good. Yeah. It is good. I think that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good. It's worth watching. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to, maybe I'll move it up in the my list. In fact, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get to our three recommend, our three options, I should say, for our listener's choice on our next episode. An interesting batch of films. Our first one is the new Netflix, Netflix, easy for me to say, original, a futile and stupid gesture. This is a film directed by David Wayne, uh, a filmmaker we like quite a bit here on Film Spotting SVU. A filmmaker, I believe we've we've reviewed one of his films before. I think we reviewed They Came Together on this very podcast, low those many years ago. This new film is a biopic. It is about mostly about a man named Doug Kenny, played as a young man by Will Forte, and as an older man by Martin Mull. Doug is one of the founders of the National Lampoon, the famous comedy magazine and later comedy brand that also gave us uh, National Lampoon's Animal House. And uh, later on, Doug also wrote Caddyshack or co-wrote Caddyshack. And so the film is about him. It's also about National Lampoon. It is about comedy in this era. You have a lot of famous people in the film playing other famous people. Just a very brief sampling. John Daly plays Bill Murray. Seth Green plays Christopher Guest. Uh, Ed Helms plays Tom Snyder. Thomas Lennon plays Michael O'Donohue. And on and on and on and on and on. Um, uh, I ha- I've already written about the film on uh, on Screen Crush. I didn't love it, but I do think there is lots we could talk about, about the biopic, the state of the biopic. Um, and we could also talk about National Lampoon. There's many National Lampoon films. Um, so there's tons we could talk about with this film. Have you watched it yet, Allison? I have not. I, I, it played at Sundance after I left and I didn't get a chance to see it at the screening beforehand. So I'll watch it like it was meant to be watched streaming on my iPad. (laughs) So that is option number one, a futile and stupid gesture. It is streaming right now on Netflix. In fact, all of our choices are streaming on Netflix this time around. Uh, Our second option is Strong Islands, which is a documentary by filmmaker Yancey Ford. And it is an Oscar nominee. It is one of the five uh, feature docs up for Best uh, Best Documentary at this year's Academy Awards. So what better time to take a look at this movie? But uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to say about this movie, actually. It is kind of half... Uh, a half personal doc and half documentary about uh, racialized violence and the ways in which uh, people are kind of excused from committing acts of violence uh, based on race and against who they're, com- who they're committing it against. Uh, Yancey Ford uh, made this movie about the murder of his brother and about how uh, that kind of how it affected his family afterwards. And it's a movie about uh, the suburbs. It's a movie about how we talk about violence. Uh, And it kind of does some formally interesting stuff that I think uh, offers a lot to talk about there. Um, But yeah, I I think that it's a pretty, it's a pretty good option and certainly a timely one. Strong Islands is our second option. It is on Netflix. All right. Our third and final option also streaming on Netflix starting on February 2nd is on Body and Soul. And this is a film directed by Ildiko and Yeti. And this is one of the five films nominated this year for Best Foreign Language Film. It's the Hungarian entry this year. And it was kind of a surprise, or at least Dark Horse uh, nominee. I haven't heard a lot about this film yet. Um, I believe it played at the Berlin Film Festival last year. It won the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival. It's played other film festivals. And it's uh, been picked up by Netflix. It's going to debut on Netflix again on February 2nd. I'll read you the plot description. Andre and Maria work together in a slaughterhouse and have the same dream every night. They meet as deer in the forest. They realize this during an investigation when a psychologist interrogates everybody at the company where they work. 
Uh, I'm not going to read the rest of it, but that's uh, the broad strokes. Sounds very intriguing. Um, I know Mm -hmm. very little about this film, but it sounds intriguing. It's got a great pedigree, and it is one of the best foreign language film nominees this year at the Oscars. So I think that would be uh, make it very notable to talk about as well. Um, I don't know a ton about Hungarian cinema, but perhaps that could be a potential topic um, for the rest of the show. Or maybe just movies where people turn into deer, because there's a lot of those. Sure. Yeah. Tons of those. So that's option number three. That old trope. Yes. Yes. Very cliched. (laughs) So that is option number three on Body and Soul, and that will be streaming on Netflix on February 2nd. Okay. Which of these movies should we review on next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video? units uh, you can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or you can just enter in the poll at the bottom of the page over at filmspottingsvu.com uh, we, we will also post the results on our social media feeds uh, your vote must be received by monday february 5th at noon after that we'll announce the winner on twitter at our twitter account uh, we are at FilmSpottingSVU, as well as over at our Facebook, also Facebook.com slash SVU, FilmSpottingSVU. Uh, you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will be out on Tuesday, February 13th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the Netflix movie review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can also follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That is where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share lots more streaming suggestions, both from ourselves and from SVU listeners. And, of course, we also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash SVU. You can get so much more of us if you're not sick of us after <laughs> 90 bi-weekly uh, minutes. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>